If you're enjoying History Extra Long Reads, then please do leave us a review. It helps people find us, which helps us to keep making the show. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Extra Long Reads where we take a deep dive into the past, bringing you the very best of BBC History magazine with fascinating articles from leading historical experts. In September 1923, the British Empire reached its maximum territorial extent and a staggering 460 million people lived within its borders. Yet even as the imperial project reached its apex, cracks were beginning to form argues Matthew Parker in today's long read. Today's feature originally appeared in the November 2023 issue of BBC History magazine and has been voiced in partnership with the Royal National Institute of Blind People. Hubris permeated the London air in late September 1923. The leaders of the British Dominions, the largely self-governing white settler colonies, had arrived in London for the Imperial Conference. It was convened to debate how foreign policy would be determined across the various territories, but it was also a celebration of continuing imperial expansion. South African Prime Minister Jan Smuts expressed his delight that the British gains from Germany had at last created an all-red route from the Cape to Cairo. The empire, he declared, had emerged from the awful blizzard of the war quite the greatest power in the world. Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin's Foreign Secretary, former Viceroy of India, Lord Curzon, agreed, declaring that the British flag has never flown over a more powerful empire. They were right. The collapse of the rival empires of Russia, Germany, Austro-Hungary and the Ottomans, and the retreat into isolation of the US, had left the British Empire the sole global superpower. And on the 29th of September 1923, as Dominion leaders arrived for the conference, the Palestine Mandate became law, bringing Palestine and Transjordan under British administration, and the British Empire reached what would prove to be its maximum territorial extent. Some 460 million people, a fifth of the world's population, woke that morning as subjects of Britain's King Emperor George V. This dwarfed the populations of the US, 112 million, Soviet Union, 135 million, and the French Empire, 93 million. Twenty-five years earlier, the Victorians had produced a stamp with a map of the world and the legend, We hold a vaster empire than has ever been. But under the terms of the post-First World War treaties, Britain had now absorbed from the German and Ottoman empires a further 1.8 million square miles and an additional 13 million subjects. So, the British Empire now covered 14 million square miles, a quarter of the world's land area, making it the largest empire in history. 
In keeping with the vision of former colonial secretary Winston Churchill, Palestine was now the keystone of a geopolitical and strategic arch that stretched the length of Africa, across the Middle East and down to India, Burma and all the way via Malaya to Australia and New Zealand. With a puppet ruler and British garrison installed in Persia and Egypt under a bogus flag of independence, you could now walk from Cape Town in South Africa to Rangoon in Burma without ever leaving the British Empire or territory it controlled. London, the world's most populous city, was the centre of global business, a shipping and cable hub communicating news, opinion, values and ideas across the world. In France, Sorbonne professor Albert de Mongeon wrote in his just-published L'Empire Britannique, without its overseas possessions, the United Kingdom is merely a small group of islands off the coast of Europe. With them, it has become one of the poles of the human race. For him, it was trade that had established British global supremacy. The gold and diamonds of South Africa, the wool, wheat, butter and meat of Australia, the wheat, fish and timber of Canada, the sugar of the West Indies, the rubber and tin of Malaya, the wheat, cotton, jute, rice and tea of India. A quarter of the world's wheat, around half its rice, wool, chrome and tin, 60% of its rubber and 70% of its gold were all produced within the empire. For de Mongeon, though, the most original type of British settlement were the cosmopolitan entrepots such as Aden, Singapore and Hong Kong, suction pumps gathering to themselves the commerce of vast regions. In fact, four of the world's five busiest ports were in the British Empire, with Hong Kong clearing nearly 40 million tonnes a year at the top of the list above London, New York, Liverpool and Singapore. What's more, nearly half of the vessels using Hong Kong harbour were under the British flag, part of an unmatched merchant fleet of more than 2,000 ships over 3,000 tonnes. It was this commercial genius, de Mongeon concluded, that had made the British Empire the largest, richest and most populous colonial empire that the world has ever seen. This immense wealth, all within the borders of the empire, was to be showcased at the vast empire exhibition, scheduled to open in six months' time. Recent troubles and unrest in India, Iraq, Egypt, Ireland and elsewhere had abated or been crushed. At the end of the previous month, the victory in Ireland of William Cosgrave's pro-treaty party over Eamon de Valera's Republicans had confirmed the Irish Free State as a dominion of the Empire, an arrangement believed to be a permanent solution to an age-old problem. The new trustee relationship between coloniser and colonised, which included a widely professed concern for the well-being of native people, together with new ideas about racial equality, promised a glorious and more humane future in a consensual empire which was now increasingly being referred to as the British Commonwealth. This, it was hoped, could even become a federation of mankind, a structure for benign world government. Arriving in London on the 29th of September, New Zealand Prime Minister William Massey told the press that the British Empire is today more necessary than ever to the welfare and peace of the world, while Australian PM Stanley Bruce said his desire was to ensure a strong and virile British Empire which should be the precursor of a world alliance. But the First World War, while dramatically expanding the size of the empire, had changed everything. 
this period became known to contemporaries as the aftermath, and the shadow of the war fell over every part and aspect of the empire, military, political, financial, racial, psychological. The war had seen the empire at its most useful ever for the mother country, the huge contribution of money and nearly 2.5 million men from the dominions, India and the African colonies had arguably made the difference between victory and defeat for Britain. But then, during the Chanak crisis of 1922, Prime Minister David Lloyd George had, without consulting them, pledged the Dominions to fight against Turkey if war broke out again. The Dominions were outraged and determined that only their own parliaments could decide on war. Now, the idea of a common foreign policy and unquestioned military alliance was under threat. The war had also wrecked the international trading and financial system on which Britain's prosperity had been built. In September 1923, Rudyard Kipling, who had famously urged the United States to take up the white man's burden and assume control of the Filipino people, gave a bad-tempered interview to the New York world. America, he said, came in the war two years, four months and seven days too late, botched the Versailles Treaty for us and withdrew without assisting any further. She has our gold, but we have our souls. Britain, for its part, was saddled with industry, which had failed to modernise and largely missed out on the second industrial revolution, based on chemicals, oil, electrical goods and, above all, cars. It also had a vast war debt, including £900 million owed to the US. New York was in the process of replacing London as the world's leading capital market. Mainland Europe was the best market for British exports, and had almost always been more important than the empire, but this market had pretty much ceased to exist. Post-war Europe was in ruins, with devalued currencies, hyperinflation and political chaos. Rival militias, including Hitler's Nazis, were fighting in the streets. There was hope that the empire could fill the gap, but this was ridiculed by the Daily Herald. It is futile to suppose that fewer than 20 million people in the dominions, with growing manufactures of their own, could, even if they dealt with none of our competitors, take the place of the 100 million in Central Europe, with whom we did such valuable trade before the war. In the meantime, Britain was suffering high taxation and unemployment, and ever harsher cuts to government expenditure, including on defence. Among British political and military leaders, there was concern that particularly in these severely straightened post-war financial circumstances, the empire was now just far too big, a huge bladder waiting to be pricked, as German wartime propaganda had alleged. To make matters worse, in order to avoid antagonising the Americans, in the forlorn hope of debt reduction and with an irrational belief in the special relationship, Britain had just ended its treaty with Japan. It had also agreed to limits on its key strategic asset, the Royal Navy. The empire had never made much strategic sense, with its closest allies on the other side of the world, but this now left the Far Eastern possessions, including Malaya, Burma and even Australia, intensely vulnerable to an expansionist and insulted Japan. The First World War, ostensibly fought against German autocracy and in the name of freedom, had cracked the foundations of the empire in other ways. Before the war, imperialism had been the familiar form of government for much of the globe. 
Now, for many, empire was a dirty word, conjuring up, as former colonial secretary Alfred Milner wrote in 1923, the vision of conquest, of domination, of the oppression of the weak by the strong, of government by force against the will of the governed. The future seemed to belong to alternative forms of government, the nation-state, democracy, communism, fascism. In Britain itself, 1918 had seen the ushering in of something approaching mass democracy for the first time, with a universal male franchise and votes for most women over 30. Could real democracy at home ever be truly compatible with autocratic imperialism abroad? For many supporters of the British Empire, the villain of the piece was US President Woodrow Wilson and his talk of self-determination at Versailles. Although Wilson was a dyed-in-the-wool segregationist and imperialist, and had been aiming his rhetoric at the imperial graveyard of Central and Eastern Europe rather than at Western overseas possessions, his words served inadvertently to encourage anti-colonial forces around the world. Furthermore, a new nuanced form of empire emerged from the Versailles Conference, the mandate system for the former imperial territories of Germany, Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Although in many ways a fig leaf for an imperial land grab, the mandates were established in principle as a form of trusteeship. Territories were to be administered for the benefit of their populations, with the express goal of moving them towards self-government in the near future. Such an idea could not be contained, and was soon being applied to the empire as a whole. This led to the reluctant granting of political reforms in India, Burma, Ceylon, Nigeria and elsewhere, but the imperial authorities soon realised that giving in to calls for reform merely stoked the demand for further constitutional changes. In the light of these mandate and trusteeship ideas, was the empire's only purpose now to dismantle itself? Had it become, as the Times asked, nothing more than a self-liquidating concern? At its greatest ever extent, the empire was suffering a crisis of confidence. What was the empire, and what was it for? In theory, the empire generated economic gain by producing raw materials, providing an outlet for capital, and importing finished goods from Britain. But did this really require a hugely expensive infrastructure? Britain's most important raw material import was cotton, most of which came from the United States. Some of the most profitable investment was in South America, particularly Argentina. Only a sixteenth of the imports of Malaya, the richest colony, were from Britain. Despite appeals to buy British, there was not a single colony that imported more cars from Britain than from the US, which turned out cheaper and better models. Despite recent declarations of racial equality, the empire was still seen in many quarters in Britain as an expression of racial pride and a result of racial superiority. We hold these countries, one empire builder wrote in 1922, because it is the genius of our race to colonise, to grade, to govern. This racist ideology fostered arrogance and ignorance in the rulers, but it was a coping stone of empire, explaining and justifying white rule. At the same time, it undermined the sense of agency and self-respect of the colonised. As Jamaica's first premier, Norman Manley, would write, the empire and British rule rest on a carefully nurtured sense of inferiority in the governed. He saw this as creating turgid lethargy and a culture of dependence. 
Jawaharlal Nehru wrote of how surprisingly most of us accepted it as natural and inevitable that Indians were second-rate. Greater than any victory of arms or diplomacy, he said, was this psychological triumph of the British in India. But things were changing. The edifice of white supremacy was starting to crumble. The defeat of the Italians in Africa in 1896 and then the victory of Japan over Russia in 1905 had seen white power overcome by the so-called lesser races. African-American leader W.E.B. Dubois spoke of a worldwide eruption of coloured pride. The Japanese victory, he wrote, had broken the magic of the word white. For Nehru in India, it diminished the feeling of inferiority from which many of his compatriots suffered. Just as significant for colonised peoples was the cataclysm of the First World War, which made a mockery of the narrative of progress built around Western technological modernity. How could Europe continue with its claim of a civilising mission when it could not contain its own barbaric violence? It was a huge blow to white prestige as well as to the confidence of the rulers. At the same time, influential politicians and writers, Edward Blyden and Joseph Kaisley Hayford in Africa, Marcus Garvey in the US, Gandhi and Tagore in India, and many others, were spreading a message of indigenous pride, ingenuity, intelligence and beauty that opposed the racist ideologies put forward by the colonial regimes. Anti-colonialists were urging the teaching of African history in schools, encouraging the appreciation of African art and music and the wearing of traditional dress, and setting up African churches, newspapers and literary societies. The same process was underway in India, Ceylon, Burma, the Caribbean and elsewhere. Congresses and political parties were being organised. Strong pan-Asian and pan-African movements were emerging. Across the empire, colonial officials were witnessing a new confidence in the colonised. In Kenya, the native employee was respectful and obedient. Now he has become openly insolent, disobedient and even menacing. In Malaya, there were complaints that Chinese people were no longer serving Europeans first in shops or stepping aside when Europeans were walking in the streets. Of course, anti-colonial interests were as varied as the empire itself, and by no means homogeneous even in a single place. Nevertheless, networks existed underneath the official channels. The example of Ireland inspired Indians who in turn encouraged Burmese and Africans. From Canada to Africa to the Pacific, a new post-war indigenous generation was turning against those of their fathers or grandfathers who had signed away their land rights, emulated the British or collaborated for their own benefit in some other way. For most of the empire's subjects, freedom from colonial rule would not come for another generation. For now, most were demanding only some sort of self-government rather than a complete exit from the empire. But with hindsight, we can see that the fault lines along which the British Empire would ultimately rupture had already started to appear. An unstoppable force was now in motion. Today's long read was written by historian and author Matthew Parker. His latest book, One Fine Day, Britain's Empire on the Brink, was published by Abacus in September. Thanks again to the Royal National Institute of Blind People for their help voicing this article which first appeared in the November 2023 issue of BBC History magazine.